2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 through 5 from the New International Version. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Several weeks ago, I taught on the disciplines of a true disciple. We talked about being a people of the word being a people that witness, being a people who have their wealth under subjection and submitted to God. And then we talked about worship, but we talked about the different elements of worship and how one part of worship is prayer. And we focused in that message on the importance of prayer in the life of the believer. Every time we pray, we engage the enemy in prayer. Paul Bilheimer writes, he said, from heaven's standpoint, all spiritual victories are won, not primarily in the pulpit, not primarily in the bright light of publicity, nor yet through the ostentatious blaring of trumpets, but in the secret place of prayer. The only prayer that overcomes Satan and releases souls from the stranglehold is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only power that releases the energy of the Holy Spirit is the power of believing prayer. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, his young son in the faith, in 1 Timothy 1.18. Listen to what he says. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. He writes in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Again, in 2 Timothy, in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4, he writes again to remind us of our duties. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul instructs the church at Ephesus on how to be prepared to engage the enemy in battle in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles. That word wiles there means the cunning devices of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. God is calling his church back to the altar of prayer. He's calling us away from self-reliance. He's calling us away from trusting in our own abilities and in our own talents. He's looking for a people today who will surrender all to him. I remember some years ago I was in a meeting in Washington, D.C. in a national prayer committee meeting and we were getting ready for the National Day of Prayer and I had just written my dissertation for my doctorate and I had quoted this gentleman in his book, and it was called, it was a book on revival. And it just so happens that I was sitting next to him in this meeting. God just orchestrated that I could meet with him. 
And we were singing that little chorus. I'm desperate for you. I'm desperate for you. And there was a precious spirit in the room that was moving in that room that day. And I'll never forget this gentleman raised his hand among all them national leaders. And he said, can I say something here? I just need to say something. I feel so prompted in my spirit that I need to testify. And they said, sure. And he said, you know, as we were singing that song, the Holy Spirit came and he asked me, he said, are you really desperate for me? Are you really hungry for me? But sometimes we'll sing that little chorus, I surrender all. And have we surrendered all? Have we really surrendered all? God is looking for a people who will surrender all today. See, being a Christian is not about my comfort. Being a Christian is not so that I can have a, a much better life and I can just enjoy life. Being a Christian is about giving my all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Becoming a sacrifice on the altar of God so that God can move and work in my life and use me in the way that he desires. He's looking for a people today who will surrender all to him. Where do we surrender? Surrender takes place at the altar. Altars are not built for our comfort. Altars are places of sacrifice. When they built altars in the Old Testament, there was always a sacrifice that was offered in the Old Testament. They never came to the altar. When David bought the field, he said, I will not take something that does not cost me anything. There's always a cost involved at the altar. And when we come to the altar of God, we surrender our hearts and our lives and all that we are to God. Altars are places of sacrifice and they cost us something. So this morning for the next few moments, I want to speak to you about altars, castles, or we could say strongholds or towers and thrones. Let's look at the altar. Amanda Bies, who's a minister from South Africa, defines an altar as, as follows. Number one, it is simply a place of contact with the spirit world. Number two, it is a place of sacrifice and a place of covenant. The Hebrew word for altar literally means a place of sacrifice. It is a place of meeting. Catherine Brown defines the altar as a meeting place between heaven and earth where God creates covenant. You can look at Genesis 8 for that. And where a priest offers either sacrifices or gifts. We must return the day, rebuild and reestablish the altar of God and the altar of prayer in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must rebuild, first of all, I believe, the personal altar of prayer. God is calling us today to rebuild the personal altar of prayer. What is the personal altar of prayer? That, that is the place of my heart. This is the personal altar of prayer. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 says, For we are the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, And your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the first altar that I have to deal with is the altar of my heart. This is the place where we meet in covenant, love relationship, and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 4 defines this as the hidden man or the hidden person of the heart. Your personal prayer altar is the place where you meet with God for your devotional and quiet time. You need to establish a place where you can meet with God on a daily basis. You can talk to God and a meeting means that you not only do the talking, but you also listen. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. It's the place where I meet with God. My grandfather was an old-time preacher. He died in 1959 on Christmas Day. He told my uncle he was trying on a jacket. He had prayed, and they said he had prayed a long and anointed prayer. 
at the family had gathered to exchange presents and he, as he was putting on a jacket, trying on a jacket that one of the children had bought him, he collapsed and he'd had a heart attack so they took him to the hospital. They couldn't do in those days what they can do medically today and my uncle, he said he went in and he said my, my, dad, my granddad told him, said, looks like the Lord's going to answer my prayer, son. He said, what was your prayer, Dad? He said that he would take me home on his birthday. And he died on Christmas Day, 1959, I believe. And then my mom and dad were married the next February. And I came along just in 1962. So I never got to know my granddad. But I've been told by different people over the years that if you go to that little mill village in Anderson, the Appleton Mill Village where he lived on our street, that they lived in a small home and they had nine children. How do you raise nine children in a four-room house? Two people can't live in a ten-room house anymore. Come on, somebody. But they raised nine children in a four-room house. He would go down into the woods down below Evergreen Street, down in that area. And not only was he down there, but the bootleggers were down there. And, and he would pray down in those woods. He would walk through those woods and he would pray. That became his altar. And those men that were down there, bound by sin, in the grip of sin, would hear the prayers of that godly man as he would walk through those woods. And he would pray and he would intercede. You need a personal altar of prayer where you can pray and intercede. And I believe that your children need to hear you pray. Your family needs to hear you pray. Not that you're praying loud. Not that you're praying to draw attention to yourself. But they need to know that mom and daddy believe in the power of prayer. And demonstrate that prayer has the ability to change our circumstances and change our life. The second altar we need to rebuild is the family altar. Which we establish in our homes through prayer, worship, reading of the word of God and righteous living. In this way, we minister unto the Lord and thereby create an altar, a meeting place with the living God. Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Years ago, there used to be an old saying that went around that we don't hear it much anymore. It simply said, the family that prays together stays together. What do I mean by a family altar? I mean that we make prayer and worship a priority in our homes. Your home should really be a miniature church. It should be a place of instruction, a place of training, a place of worship, a place where we pray, a place where we intercede, and a place where we do all the things with our family that we do in the house of God. It ought to start in our homes. If we're depending on our Sunday school teachers and we're depending on the church to be all of the biblical training that our children have and all the examples and the model that our children will have, they're going to be deficient. They need to see it first in our homes. Dr. Richard Tate writes, he said, it's difficult to find a family that has prayed together daily that has broken down or fallen apart. Josiah Gilbert Holland writes, no nation can be destroyed that possesses good Christian homes. Do you have a family altar? Let me encourage each of you to establish a family altar in your home. The family that makes prayer a priority will be a successful family. When you pray together as a family, you're teaching your children to pray. Why, how is that? Because more is caught than taught. I used to love and go be around great men and women of God and where they were ministering. And I'd get around the altar and help them work that altar. Why? More would be caught than taught. They see this thing lived out. How many of you want your family to be successful? We will have revival in the New Testament church when we have revival in our homes. This awakening that God longs to bring can start in your house, in your own family. Third altar that we need to rebuild is the corporate altar. We need to make prayer a priority in the church again. 
Prayer gets moved to the side, gets pushed to the back. Some of the lowest attended meetings that we can have are the prayer meetings. And God is saying it's time to rebuild the corporate altar. Matthew 21, 13, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Sometime back I preached on the seven churches, and in those seven churches in the first three chapters of Revelation there, Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus visited each of those churches. He introduced himself. He introduced himself in a certain way. He used different names to identify who he was revealing himself to those churches as. He commended what was good and what was right, but then he corrected what was wrong. He said to one church, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. He said to one church, you've lost your first love. What would he say to us today if he visited our home, if he visited our church? What did he say what he said when he came into the temple? And he's quoting Isaiah, by the way. And in Isaiah it says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here it says for all people. But you've made it a den of thieves. Because what had happened, the religious rulers of that day had, had taken and they were selling different types of sacrifices and the money changers. And if you go to Jerusalem today, it says money change. They're still there. They'll change your money out from dollars to shekels. They were cheating and robbing the people and using the word of God and the things of God to make a profit and to make money. And Jesus had had enough. And he brings a rebuke and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What's the Lord saying to us today? My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's never changed. God hasn't changed his mind. We're not on a different track. He means for his house to rebuild the corporate altar of prayer and to make prayer priority again in our church. Time to rebuild the altar of prayer. That brings me to my second thought, and that's this. Altars determine strongholds. An altar is a place of worship. It's a place of sacrifice. Serving at the altar establishes a stronghold, a fortress, castle, a tower. Do you know in the Bible there are righteous and unrighteous altars? When we worship at an unrighteous altar, we open the land to the entity that we worship. What is a stronghold? Well, there are two different types of strongholds. First of all, there's righteous strongholds. Those are available to us as believers. And then there are unrighteous strongholds. One brings protection and liberation. The other brings bondage and enslavement. Whatever the enemy does, he never creates anything. He just perverts things and he takes and he corrupts things. And whatever he does always brings us into an ensnarement and brings us into an enslavement or brings us into bondage. A righteous stronghold is defined in the scriptures as a place of safety and protection. One definition I found says this. It's a place that has been fortified to protect it against attack. Francis Frangipane writes, there's a place of immunity for the believer, a spiritual fortress in Christ that protects us from the attacks of the devil. How do I build a righteous stronghold? I get the altar rebuilt. I get the altar at the right place of priority in my life, then I will build a righteous stronghold in my life. For those who abide in the stronghold of God, the onslaught of the wicked one does not touch them. What does that mean? It means that there's a place where we can be hidden in God. Psalms 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised so that I shall be saved from my enemies. Psalm 61.2-4 From the end of the earth I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. 
a righteous stronghold. An unrighteous stronghold is an argument that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It is thoughts that enslave or put people into bondage. Let me give you a couple of definitions of an unrighteous stronghold. Mike Dogowitz defines a stronghold as internal fortresses of influence from which demon spirits agitate, oppress, and afflict individuals. These spirits arouse and incline attitudes and actions that are contrary to the will of God. Ed Savoso of Harvest Ministries defines a stronghold as a mindset impregnated with hopelessness. It causes me to accept an unchangeable something we know is contrary to the will of God. Mark Buback says a stronghold is an idea, belief, fear, feeling, desire, or anything else, arguments, pretensions against the knowledge of God that has a stronghold or a firm grip on our mind, our spirit, our body, or heart, enslaving us, motivating us to act out against God's will through repeated sinful behavior. A stronghold is simply this, a believed lie we've allowed to become reality to us and hold us in bondage to sin. Strongholds are fortresses that give the devil access to individuals, families, cities, and even regions. These strongholds must be torn down so that the enemy can be exposed and evicted. It's time to evict the enemy. But we have to deny him first access and close the doors that have been opened to him in our lives, our homes, and our church. How does the enemy gain access to our lives? Compromise, sin, disobedience, rebellion. When we open the door to the enemy... We give him legal right to come and be there. See, he has no authority except usurped authority. It's authority that we give to him. How does the enemy gain access? Through the doors we open. How do we detect the stronghold? How do we know a stronghold is working? Well, Francis Frangipane writes in his book, The Three Battlegrounds, if you want to identify the hidden strongholds in your life, you need only survey the attitudes in your heart. Every area in your thinking that glistens with hope in God is an area which is being liberated by Christ. But any system of thinking that does not have hope, which feels hopeless, is a stronghold which must be pulled down. Basically, a stronghold is simply a series of arguments that the enemy uses against us. And it's time to pull down those strongholds. The Bible says that our weapons are not worldly or earthly, but they're mighty through God to the demolishing of strongholds. So how do I get my mind renewed? By meditating and studying the Word of God. As you study the Word of God, your mind's going to begin to change. Hope's going to come. Faith's going to arise. See, you can read a good novel. You can read fiction. You can read magazines and you can read about the Kardashians if you want to. It's not going to bring life. But when you read in the pages of this book, it will produce life in the place of death. It will produce hope in the place of hopelessness. It will bring faith in the midst of my doubts. And I will begin to grow spiritually and I'll begin to see who Jesus is because Jesus is found on the pages of this book. And my mind will get renewed. So, Pastor, I thought I could just come to the altar this morning. You could give us a prophetic word and we could be zapped by the power of God and our mind would be renewed. You may be touched in your spirit, but your mind's only going to get renewed as you get into a walk with God, into a relationship with God, and you make the word of God a priority in your life. And as you walk that thing out, the word of God begins to wash over you. Here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, principle upon principle. What happens? I begin to think more like the Lord thinks and like the Lord Jesus thinks. Why? because his word begins to come alive in my heart. Strongholds. The stronghold is what gives the enemy access to hold us in bondage. Sin and iniquity always seek to build throne. And that brings me to my third thought, as that is this. Altars, castles, strongholds, and thrones. 
In every castle, there's a throne. There's somebody that rules over that castle. That castle is a fortress, and that castle is served by people. Many times they will farm the land outside, but when an enemy comes to take that land, they will run into that fortress. They will, they will go into that fortress, into that castle. They will close the gates of that castle. It is a walled in structure, and they will use that as a fortress to protect them from the attacks of the enemy. But there's a ruling entity in that stronghold, in that fortress. Are we building a stronghold for the Lord and in his stronghold today, or are we bound by a stronghold of the enemy that allows the enemy to have access to come continually and to keep me in a cycle of unbelief and keep me in a cycle of defeat and I can never move out of that cycle because I'm dealing with a stronghold. I have to dismantle that stronghold. Throne. The enemy seeks to build a throne. We call those iniquitous thrones. He seeks dominion. Dr. Peter Wagner says this, Satan's central task and desire is to prevent God from being glorified. Whenever God is not glorified in a person's life, in a church, in a city, or in the world as a whole, Satan has to that degree accomplished his objective. He continues, the underlying motivation, as we are fully aware, is that Satan himself wants the glory due to God. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, how are you falling from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground? You who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Isaiah 14, 14, listen to his words. I will be like the most high. Iniquity builds a throne. Sin empowers the enemy to rule. In the Old Testament, when God gave the promise of a land to Abraham, he quickly built an altar of prayer on that land, and he sacrificed to God there. What is the implication? Whenever you build an altar of sacrifice upon a piece of land, you are drawing that land into a covenant relationship with the God you are serving. From that time on, you're putting that land directly under the control of that spirit or spirits. From the time on, he or they have a hold over that land or that property. They establish a stronghold and they rule from the fortress. And if you live under a stronghold long enough, it becomes a part of your identity. And if you come preach the word of God and you touch that stronghold, folks will get angry at you. Church people, religious folks, get mad. He's trying to attack our identity. No, I'm trying to attack the stronghold that's held us in bondage that's become a part of our identity because we come up in that. You say, well, how do I know I'm in a stronghold? When the traditions of man have more power over you than what the word of God says, we're living under a stronghold. God put this sickness on me to teach me something. I cannot find that in scripture anywhere. Listen, I, I was battling a pinched nerve for nearly a month or longer. The only thing I learned was I don't like pain. I really don't like pain and that pain's tough. I didn't learn anything except how to pray and intercede and cry out to God and say, Lord, in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's your teacher. God always wants me to be poor. We equate poverty with spirituality. It may be that God wants to bless you. So that you can do something great for the kingdom of God and help finance what the kingdom of God needs to be financed on the earth. When we hold to tradition more than we hold to the word, that's a stronghold. Let me give you the characteristics of an unrighteous altar. See, in America, we've opened the door to abortion. We've opened the door to wickedness. That, that comes and it builds an iniquitous throne. It establishes itself in regions. You can travel to different regions in this nation and there are different strongholds and entities that rule those regions in this nation. It's the door that's been opened. It's where we've worshipped. It's who we've built altars to. Let me give you some characteristics of the altar. A place of false worship. 
where men offer worship and sacrifice to other gods or evil spirits. One of my first missions trips was to Haiti. When I was a young boy working in my dad's business, we used to have a, a group of men that came from North Carolina and they sold us banana leaf baskets that were handmade in Haiti. And they had gone down and they had established a school and they had established this business in Haiti and they made these baskets. They would import them and then they would sell them to companies like us that would sell them in our stores. And what they were doing is they were going down to minister to the Haitian people, but they were also teaching them how to be industrious and how to work. And it put a, heart, a desire in my heart as a young man to go to Haiti. And the first missions trip I ever made in the early 90s was to Haiti. And when I went to Haiti, in those days, it was devastated. If you remember when Bill Clinton was president, Haiti had all kinds of problems and they disposed one leader and they put Aristide into power and they sent troops in and the United Nations were there. And it's, it's, it's just a nation. It's the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Now, Haiti's in the Caribbean. It's on the island of Hispanola. Part of that island is the Dominican Republic and part is Haiti. Haiti is far worse off than the Dominican Republic is. The Dominican is much better off than Haiti. Why is that? Because Haiti has dedicated that island to Satan. They have festivals every so often and they just call a, a holiday for the island and they dedicate the island to Satan. It's a land that is filled with witchcraft and voodoo and all kinds of wickedness. And it is devastated. They had a devastating earthquake. It's just the only hope for Haiti is Jesus. That's it. They built an altar to an evil spirit. An unrighteous altar is a meeting point between evil spirits and men. It is a gate into the spiritual realm. It is a place where evil spirits reveal themselves to men. It is a place where covenant is carried out between an evil deity and men. It is a place where men draw power from unclean or evil spirits. It is an unholy place. An altar is very powerful. That's why we need to rebuild the altars in our homes. Reestablish the altar in our church because we can either build a righteous or an unrighteous altar. Altars are powerful because altars establish thrones. What we worship, we empower. That's why Paul the Apostle wrote to the church at Corinth. And he says, you have to demolish the strongholds. You have to demolish those things that have held us in bondage. How do we do it? We do it through the word. We do it through our worship. We do it by preaching the truth of God's word. It's a process. Righteous Altars will open a door for the presence of God. I'll tell you, we need the presence of God more than anything. When we worship, the Bible teaches in Psalms 22 verse 3, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. That word enthroned there in the Hebrew, it, it literally talks about the throne of God. When we praise the Lord, it creates a place for God's throne to come. So when we build an altar and we worship at that altar, we're inviting the very presence of God himself to come in the midst of our altar. So I declare, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. An altar forms the legal ground for either blessing or curses. If the altar is established to and for the glory of God, then it will release a blessing. If an altar is established for the purposes of worshiping a false god or evil spirit, then it will release a curse. Who are we worshiping? You say, well, pastor, I'm not worshiping an evil spirit. I'm not even worshiping an idol. Where do we lavish most of our affection and what gathers most of our attention? Are we walking in obedience to God's word? Are we living according to the principles and the precepts that God has outlined in his word? We've got to take the whole of the book and walk that thing out and live that thing out. You say, well, that's impossible. No, it's not. Because the Holy Spirit empowers us to do it. It begins simply by building an altar. What do I lavish attention and affection on? What has most of my attention and most of my affection? Am I living in obedience to God's word? I'm walking in obedience. See, disobedience is sin. Sin always brings decrease. Sin always causes a problem. 
Sin always does irreparable harm. And sin opens the door for the enemy and gives the enemy access. And once the enemy gets access, he'll take a foothold. And from there, he'll build a stronghold. And the next thing you know, I'm living in bondage to a stronghold. And that stronghold has to be dealt with and torn down. Because if it's not, it becomes a part of my identity. We need to find our identity in the Lord. We need to find our identity in his word. We need to know who we are in Christ. My question to you is simply this. Who sits on the throne of your heart today? Who rules? Who rules? Who's ruling the throne of your heart today? Is it Jesus? Is he Lord? Is he first? Is he foremost in your life? At what altar are we worshiping today? Worshiping at a righteous altar? Or are we worshiping at an unrighteous altar? What gets our attention? What gets our affection? What is it we lavish on the most? That can become an idol. It can become an idol in our life. And idols in our life will prevent us from God's best in our life. How many of you want God's best in your life?